Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to thank and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Hi everyone and welcome to On The House, the Household Management Science Insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Gabriella Yastra, coming to you from NAM, Melbourne, Australia. Let's begin. Hi everyone and welcome back to the show. Today we're going to be talking about unveiling the secrets of budgeting, saving and debt management with Dr. Severin Bryan and she is an accredited financial cons- uh, counsellor. Um, so thank you for joining me today. It is my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And so that we can get to know you a bit, a bit before we get um, digging into this uh, budgeting topic, um, could you introduce yourself in a bit more detail? Well, I am, as you said before, an accredited financial counsellor. And what that means is I work with clients to manage their basic money uh, needs. And that may include budgeting, teaching them how to save strategies on how to save, helping them to set financial goals, um, helping them manage their credit and grow their credit scores if that's needed, uh, helping them maybe managing student loans, the ba- just the basic personal finance needs, getting them that foundation so that they can build on that and maybe work with a, an advisor who can help them with wealth management. Interesting. I've got lots of questions about so many of those topics, but I think we'll dig into that a little bit later. Uh, But first, we're going to do a section that we call Have You Met Dr. Sev, where we ask you about some of your favorite things. Um, So the first thing I'd like to know is what is your favorite book? Well, I consider myself a bibliophile. I my favorite book could be the book I'm reading at the moment. (laughs) It just so happens to be this book. This week, my favorite book is The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. Uh, I find that book fascinating because he's talking about the fact that no matter what we know about personal finance or what we know about what we should do with our money, our behavior sometimes contradict that knowledge. And that's so fascinating because we know we're supposed to eat right. We know we're supposed to exercise. We know we're supposed to do those things. But why do we not do those things? And that's the psychology behind our action. And that is fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think that so much of what makes us human is sort of that irrationality, you know, Um, maybe I should save my money and buy groceries and eat healthy, but instead I'm going to buy a pizza instead and waste my money like that. Yes, uh, fortunately, uh, those are, those are some of the decisions that we sometimes make and, and then we end up beating ourselves up, but you know, we shouldn't do that because we're all human and there are some things that we are some areas that we're stronger in than others. And if we find an area, let's say managing money is an area of weakness, then we can always seek the help of a professional or find books or things that can help us manage that. Because I think of money as a tool and 
it's really learning how to use the tool. If I don't use the hammer correctly, then I may hit my finger. But if I learn how to use the hammer, and it may take a few hits for me to learn how to use the hammer properly, then I no longer hit my thumb. And it's the same with money. We may make a couple of uh, mistakes or decisions that really doesn't serve us. But then as we learn, and if we're willing to be open to learning, we can learn how to manage money. Mm -hmm. And I guess it's also um, maybe being careful when you start off, like with a hammer, you don't immediately hit something with the your hardest strength with it because you might break something. And the same with money. You don't go and invest all of your money in one go. Right. That's that's correct. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Um, yeah. So uh, moving on, we'll move to uh, what movie have you uh, watched recently and enjoyed? Well, I am not a moviegoer. <laughs> the last movie I saw was Hidden Figures, and I think that was in 2017. And before that, it was the Titanic in maybe 26 years ago. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I am not a movie person at all. I just love to read. That's the way I relax. So mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and did you like the Titanic? <laughs> well, I fell asleep halfway through, so I'm not even <laughs> sure how it ends. <laughs> I, I did not finish that movie. I've never been able to finish that movie. <laughs> I've got to say it's quite long and I've tried watching it and I think I got like half a, half an hour in, so I understand. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what about podcasts? Um, do you listen to any podcasts or too busy reading for that? Well, I listen to my own podcast, the Dr. Mm -hmm. Seb Talks Money podcast. And one of the reasons I do that is because there's something I'll catch, some nuance, something that was said either by me or a guest that may spark another podcast episode or something that I, I said, not realizing that that was a nugget that I could probably use in a social media post or something. So I love listening to my own podcast. And the other two that I love listening to because they're short, they use humor, and they are the indicator from Planet Money and then also Planet Money. I, they're just really short. And they get the point across. Yeah, I, I love those two podcasts because, or I listen to Planet Money because they explain things that I don't really understand. Like I, I'm not a big finance money person. Um, I sort of, I make my money and then I pay my rent and that's all I think about really. And they explain all these big, you know, economic trends, all these, you know, financial decisions in such a really great way. So yeah, I, I, I definitely see where you're coming from and also very funny as well. Yeah, it, it yeah. makes it engaging. Mm -hmm. uh, so you're not even realizing that you're learning uh, because of the way they, uh, the format of the mm. podcast. Yes. And I'm very um, intimidated by the fact that you can listen to yourself um, on, the pod on your podcast. Well, it took a while. <laughs> <laughs> because I could always find things wrong. Mm -hmm. I will listen to it and... I would hear myself, oh, I should have spoken a little softer there, a little louder there. Oh, I said too many ums there. So I could always find things wrong. And then I've gotten to the place where now I listen. And if I hear something that doesn't sound pleasing to my ear, then I find a way to correct it in the next one. Mm. Because people listen and they're telling me they enjoy it. They're not hearing the things that 
I'm hearing. And that's because I have a plan for my podcast. And if I don't think the plan is going the way I think it should go, I'm, that's what I'm hearing in my head. But somebody else is listening and they're hearing the nuggets and they're liking what they're hearing. So I've learned to just kind of forget it. Yes, your voice is what you have. Just do the podcast and be okay with that. <laughs> I do think that listening back is a great way to learn. Um, I definitely said um, a lot in my first few podcasts, um, but it's also, uh, I just don't know if I could get over the mortification of listening to myself ramble. <laughs> so yes, I'm very, um, very inspired by you. Um, and uh, do you have a role model? I have quite a few, but I think my dad is my biggest role model. And the reason for that is because he did not have past a high school education, but he was the most well-read person I've ever met. I'm, I'm talking outside of a college professor, any of those. He was a voracious reader. And that, I think, is what caused me to become a, a big reader. And another thing that really inspire me about my dad is the fact that he had nine kids. And wow. when he passed away, he left houses and lands to all of us, all, all nine kids. Wow. And with someone not having a high school education and not having what we would say is the degrees and all of that, for him to achieve as much as he did was, is just such an inspiration to me. And knowing that it doesn't take having a degree to achieve things. It's really about you, how you go about structuring your life, how you go about, um, you know, pursuing the things that really matter. And he is still to this day, he's passed on, but to this day, he is still my biggest role model and someone I remember and I look up to when there are things that happen. I think of him and I think of how he would have approached that whatever the thing is I'm trying to deal with. And it just, he's just a phenomenal man. <laughs> he sounds amazing. I mean, I can't, I think it's difficult enough for, for parents to leave their kids um, houses and land, you know, when you've only got two kids, uh, yet alone nine kids. So yeah, sounds amazing. Must've made some really very smart choices, um, um, you know, um, during his life. Yeah, he's, he was very frugal. He didn't teach us about money. He didn't really tell us about money. But looking back, he taught us by his action. Um, and, um, and and I to clarify, it was actually one house for three girls and then one house for another three girls. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then the other three, each two got houses and one got land. So I, I, just to clarify that, it was nine houses, although that would have been great. <laughs> I mean, it's still amazing though. I mean, yeah. even that many properties and that much land, st still mm -hmm. amazing achievement. Yeah. Yes, he, he he did a lot for people even in the community. And this is in, back home in Jamaica. He did a lot for people in the community at his funeral. I heard about all the things that he did, helping kids going to go to school, help because, you know, you had to pay for high school. You had to buy oh. uniforms. You had to pay to go to high school. And he helped a lot of people to get jobs, to come to go abroad. I mean, just a lot of things that... He never boasted. He never said anything about any of that. 
and we found that out at his funeral. Oh, wow. Amazing. And um, speaking of inspiration, um, have you completed any courses that have inspired you? Well, I I, I, would think, I can think of three just recently. Mm-hmm. I, I told you I am an accredited financial counselor and I just completed that program. It was a took me about three years because I needed to get a thousand experience hours. I needed to pass a three hour proctored exam, need to do some education and I need to sign an ethics uh, document to practice. And that program was very inspirational because I was able to work with so many people from different backgrounds just to get the experience. The other program that I just completed was with NASDAQ Entrepreneurial Center and it was called a milestone circle. And you really focused on a milestone that you want to accomplish at the end of the program. And the thing that I accomplished was a journal and budget tracker that actually two, two Thursdays ago, I, I placed it on Amazon and it's live on Amazon. So that was also a great program. And I'm currently completing a program with Cornell University and it is a women's entrepreneurial certificate program. So those three programs back to back that I have just gone through and I'm going through have been really inspirational because it made me, it gave me some foundational things. It affirmed some things that I had been doing and it really inspired me to think beyond what I see and Uh, It connected me with some awesome women, uh, which is really a great thing because I have a network of women now that I did not have when I started any of these programs. Mm. And I'm sure that they will be providing advice and you can also provide them with advice for many different, different, you know, problems that you might come across. Yes. And actually I've gone back and uh, volunteered as a mentor in the NASDAQ uh, entrepreneurial uh, program because we're encouraged to give back and I love to pass on knowledge because I'm standing on the shoulders of giants that went before me. So I want to be able to do the same for somebody else that's coming behind me. So mm-hmm. that is, that has been a very rewarding um, effort of, of volunteering as a mentor with their program. Yes. And, and you're kind of doing that here today by coming on the show. So thank you so much for yeah, coming on the show and, and um, you know, giving us some advice. Yeah, it, it is my pleasure. This is something that just gets me so excited. And I know it's nerdy, <laughs> but just the idea of money and the idea of being able to tell someone or to show someone the way out of a problem, even if they don't take the advice, but at least they have the options and they may not act on it today, but few years later, they may remember that advice and act on it. So just being able to share that knowledge and to show people the way forward is just, there is something about that that is priceless. So that our listeners can get um, a taste of of what you've got to offer. And so we can start helping our listeners. I'm going to get onto our questions today. So the first question is, how do you define household management? I think of household management as organizational systems that help our household run smoothly. And some of those systems may be external, some may be internal, but it's 
what are the systems that you have in place to help your organization run smoothly? And if the organization, be in your household, doesn't run smoothly, what are some things that you have in place that could correct that course? Um, so, you know, for example, if you have a, two children and they both need to be at one at football and one at soccer for at 5 p.m. on Tuesday, what system do you have in place to get them both there? You know, that's to me as household management, because it's all part of, it's all impacting your household, where, even though it's not within the home per se. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not only does having to get them um, there on time impact, you know, you, but it also impacts, you know, what you're packing them for lunch, um, what yeah. you're doing for breakfast, shower systems, um, maybe laundry afterwards. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, and are there any misconceptions about household management? I think one of the biggest misconception is that it's only within the home. For example, are the dishes clean? Is the laundry done? Is the laundry put away? But I think it's more than that. It's everything that impacts the members of that household. It could be how much are you getting paid correctly? Or is your salary met, um, enough to cover your expenses? It's are you getting the kids to bed on time? Are they getting to school on time? So it's everything, I think, that is that impacts that family. It's not just what is inside the house, not just the chores that you do inside of the house. Mm. I guess, you know, our lives aren't just, you know, our lives aren't just in the house. It's not just at work or at school. Everything is very intertwined. You bring your homework to do at home and you take it back to school. You know, um, if you um, get a bonus, then everyone in the house maybe gets some new clothes. Um, yeah, it's it's all interconnected. Um, yes, it really is. Um, it's our entire lives are so connected by different things and we can't really separate one thing over another because they all impact each other and having a great management system doesn't mean things won't go awry, but it means that we have a, a process in place that can help us get to where we need to get to, whatever goals we need to achieve. And then if something goes awry, then we know what the system is and what we need to do to fix that part of the system that probably didn't work or didn't, um, not that it didn't work or maybe we didn't um, implement it correctly or something, whatever that is, but at least we have a process in place that we can adjust as needed because our households are always evolving. Our needs change. We add family members. We take away family members. There are things that are always changing. So we have to have a system that's flexible and it's, it cannot be a static system because nothing is static on this earth. I don't think. <laughs> no. Um, even I think the things we think are static are probably just moving much more slowly than we can perceive. Yeah. So, yeah, you're mentioning that, um, you know, the household is 
about processes, you know, making sure that uh, things are working correctly and if things aren't working, changing things. And I think that that's, that relates to what we're going to be talking about today, which is um, household budgeting um, and, yeah, debt management. So I guess the first thing that I'd like to know is what is budgeting and why should we do it? Well, budgeting is simply controlling our money. It's really understanding what's coming in and what's going out. And it's important to do that because if we don't understand what's coming in and how it covers what needs to go out, then we can get in trouble. I see athletes and prominent figures who make millions of dollars and they're broke. And it's not because they didn't make enough. It's because they didn't understand how to manage what's coming in and what's going out. And that's simply what the budget is. It's really to just tell my money where it needs to go when it comes in. And if I don't have enough of it, how do I manage what I do have to make it work for the expenses I need to cover? And do I need to adjust those expenses? Because there are only three things we can do when it comes to our budget and our money. We can increase income, decrease expenses, or do both. So it's it's as simple as knowing what's coming in and knowing what's going out and how do we allocate resources to what's going out. So it seems easy, but um, I mean, just thinking about the first step, which I guess would be to know what's, what's um, coming in. Um, I guess, where do you start when you're trying to figure this out? Um, yeah, is it... I guess the best place would be, this is my wage, this is how much I get in. But where do you go from there? I think the first thing to do is really to understand what it is that you want to accomplish with your money. What are what are the financial goals that you want to accomplish? And then look at what's coming in and, and what's going out to see how can I accomplish a goal based on my inflows and outflows. Do I need to increase my income? If I need to increase my income, what are the possibilities of doing that? Do I need to ask for a raise? Do I need to take on a side job? Uh, do I need to ask for overtime? Do, do I need to maybe ask for a bonus? What do I need to do to do that? So my, if my goal, for example, is to maybe buy a house, what's coming in? And what do I need for down payment? Well, based on that, I may have to do some adjustments in my budget. I may need to adjust how much is going out. And a lot of times when people don't want to make uh, adjustments in their expenses, it's because they're thinking this is something I have to do all the time. And it's not necessarily so. We can do um, an adjustment in our expenses and we can think, okay, I need to buy a house. And so for six months, I won't eat out. And this summer, I won't go on that vacation. So, you know, just what is my goal? What is my end goal with my money? And how can I get to that end goal with my current situation, my current in income, my current expenses? Or do I need to make some adjustments to any of that to get to my end goal? Because we have to have a why. It, you know, it's it's more than just going to work and bringing in that money and spending it on whatever it is we're spending it on. 
we have to have a why. Is it for, um, do I need to save for retirement? How soon do I want to retire? Do I want to retire in my 60s, my 70s? What am I putting in place to do that? And retirement will look different for everybody. My mom is retired and she never worked. I don't think my mom ever made more than $30,000 per year. And she's retired and very happy. Well, somebody else may be retired and they've made millions and they're miserable. So it's really, each person has to look at their own situation. What is my goal? What do I want to achieve? And how does my present circumstance help me get to where where I want to go. And if my present circumstance is not in alignment to get to me to where I want to go, then how can I adjust to get there? And it may be monetarily, it may be something else, but it's based on what it is you want to achieve. Okay. So um, I'm going to bring in some personal personal um, thoughts here. So mm-hmm. I... I make money, I make enough money to live, but I don't really have any goals. Um, My goal is to make enough money to live and, you know, go on holiday sometimes and um, mostly just live my life. But if eat out, if I want to eat out, not worry about grocery shopping. Is that enough of a goal? Should I have higher goals than that? Um, Yeah. It's your goal. So that's perfectly fine for you. And that's the thing about personal finance. It's personal. And if that makes you comfortable and you're achieving the things that you want to achieve, then that's perfectly fine. It's never my place to tell a client that you should do this or that. What I typically do is I'll say, here are some things you may want to consider. Retirement is one thing. Eventually, you're not going to be working. So do you want to think about retirement? What kind of plan do you want to have in retirement? Do you want to work in retirement? So I ask those kinds of questions for them to think about their own goal and see if they want to make a different goal. But it's never my place to say, you should think about retirement and you should have six months of savings and you should do this. It's never my place to, to do any of that. Because again, I share my mom, everybody's retirement, everybody's goal is going to be different. But my job is to give options and show possibilities of things that you could possibly add into your budget, add into your goals. And then if you want to get there, if you want to make changes, now how can I help you make sure those changes get you to where you want to get to? And I, and I guess most people who do come to you to ask for advice, they do have a goal in mind, um, whether it be a house or retirement. Um, I'm guessing people like me probably aren't specifically out there looking for, for assistance with this. What are some common reasons that people do come to you and that people want to learn how to budget? The most common ones is debt and um, credit. And I find that there are people sometimes that are fixated on getting a great credit score, but I always tell them, you really need to develop good financial habits because when you develop good financial habits, that will lead to a good credit score. So most of the time they're fixated on getting their credit score higher so they can do something else. Uh, But if you don't have really good foundational practices, 
then getting your credit score high would be great. You know, ask the person who won the lotto. They thought more money would make their life better, but because they didn't have those foundational practices, they are right back where they were. So they'll come to me about credit. Uh, they'll come to me wanting to manage their debt. Uh, they're thinking, okay, my debt is not manageable. I have, I don't make enough to cover my debt. So we'll work on plans to structure their debt so that they can pay off the debt. Um, and it may not be paid off in their lifetime, but at least they have a plan to get to, to manage it the best way right now. So it doesn't negatively impact their life, their peace of mind while they're going through that. Another thing that too, that people will come to me about is saving. I want to save money. Well, I, one of my first questions when they come to me is why do you want to save money? Because I don't want you to save money because it's a thing to do. But if you have a goal, you're going to not touch that money or you're going to think twice about touching that money. But if you're just saving just to save, then you'll probably take that money out because you don't have a goal. You don't have a reason to save that money. So those are, you know, most of the times it's about around saving, it's around debt, it's around credit. And, and the fourth is typically around budgeting, but they don't really call it budgeting. They'll just say, I just need to learn how to manage my money which is really budgeting. Okay. I, I do have a few questions, I think, around quite a few of those things that we just discussed. So I think I'm just going to try and hit them one at a time. I guess, first of all, I've heard people talk about credit and credit scores. It comes up in ads a lot. I don't really understand what it is. Can you explain it? And can you explain it for newbies like me? Okay. Well, credit is simply a loan. It simply is. You're borrowing money from an institution, whether it's on a credit card, a student loan, or mortgage. So you're you're borrowing things on credit and it creates a, a profile for you. And based on that reporting, that profile that a, a credit agency may have for you on, on your borrowing practices, from that profile, they create a credit score. Now, there are two main credits, well, I would say one main one and one that's coming into more um, more prevalent use. The first one is a FICO score. And that is comprised of five parts. 35% of your FICO score is on-time payment. So how are you making your payments? Are you paying on time? That's a big chunk of your score. 30% of your score is on utilization. So let's say you have a credit card, which is, which has $1,000 on, you know, that's your limit, $1,000. How much of that are you using? If you're using more than 30%, that's going to have a negative impact on your credit score. And that's 30% of your credit score, that utilization portion. 15% of your FICO score is history. How long have you established credit? And they typically look at that not only for how long you've established credit, but based on your age group. So for somebody in my age group, I should have credit established maybe 30 years ago. So they're comparing that to determine how much of the 850, which is a maximum credit score, how much of that will they allocate to me for how long I've established history? Then there's 10%, which is mixed, which means 
What type of credit do you have established? Do you have installment credit, which would be like a mortgage, a car payment, because it's a regular payment? Or do you have revolving credit? So that would be like a credit card. So if you have a mix of those, they look at you more favorably because they're saying you can manage all types of credit. And then the other 10% is how much are you looking for credit? So if you are asking creditors to give you credit, to extend credit to you, that's 10% of your score. So you have to be very careful because a lot of times we go into stores and they say, if you open a new credit card, you get 10% off. <laughs> and we think, okay, it's 10% off. But if we're trying to build our, co- our scores, that 10% is important enough to that it will suppress your credit score. So we have to be careful how many times we're asking for new credit. So that's the main five, the five parts of the FICO score. The other score is the Vantage score, and that's that's six parts. And it's the same breakdown. It's just the percentage is uh, percentages are different for the Vantage score, but the FICO is the one that is used more often than any other score. So you know our credit is really a representation of our financial behavior. And then the score is built on that reputation and what's on our credit reports. Okay. And I've heard, you know, people, I think it's just on the internet, you know, their parents start building their credit when they're young by, I guess, getting them a credit card in their name and then purchasing things and paying things off. Mm -hmm. I'm in my 30s. I've never done that. Is that going to be a problem? No, it won't be a problem uh, because you can build a credit score without credit cards. Mm-hmm. You can definitely do that. My daughter, what I did with her is when she went off to college, I added her as an authorized user on my card. And I didn't give her the card at first, but when she went off to college, I gave her the card so she can use it for any emergencies. So you can have you can add someone as an authorized user on a credit card. You don't have to give them the card and they will bill credit. You can, uh, we have what what was called um, credit lender pro, uh, uh, products, like a self lender or something like that, where what you're doing is you're going to the bank and you're saying, I need to build credit. So what I'd like to do is I would like for you to give me some money. They'll give you, say, 2000 but they don't give it to you. They keep it on an account for you. And what you're doing is each month, you're going to pay a certain amount to the bank. And at the end of, let's say it's a year. So let, let's start over. We'll say, I'm going to the bank and I'm going to get $1,000 from the bank. The bank is going to put it in an account for me and for a year, whatever that thousand is divided by 12, or if it's two years or whatever the period is, we can negotiate that with the bank. And we're going to make payments every month to the bank. The bank is going to report those payments as if we're paying on a bill. And at the end of that period, we'll get that money that the bank, quote unquote, loaned us. And that is a way to also bill credit. You know, of course, they're going to take fees out of that and you'll get interest if the bank pays interest on that money at the end of that period. And then there's also the third way, which is a secured card. 
So you can have a secured card. You go to the bank and you pay them. You This time you pay them $500 or $250 or whatever it is. And you charge something small and pay it off. Charge something small, pay it off. And that's reported to the credit bureau and you're building credit. So yes, those are kind of credit products, but they're just different ways to build credit without you taking on a lot of credit cards or loans or anything like that to to build your credit. Okay. And why why should we do this? Is it just to look good to the banks? Well, uh, <laughs> I have a problem with, with credit, the whole credit system anyway, because the way it's designed is to get us in debt. But um, to answer your question, <laughs> one of the reasons why we need to have good credit is because it's very difficult for us to buy a house with cash. If you don't have the cash to buy a house or a car or any of those big product uh, pro- big products, then you're going to need to establish good credit so that they can give you favorable rates. Um, so that's one of the reasons why you may want to have good credit so that you can get good rates for the products that they're going to loan you. Now, another thing to think about is... When you are going to the bank to ask for for loans for, you know, for whatever it is that you're asking for, your credit is one, only one factor within the the loan process. So even though you're, they're looking at that three-digit number and they're putting a lot of weight on it, there are so many other things. There are things like, you know, how did you do on... You know, how what, what is your loan to value? For example, if you're buying a house, what is how much is it that you are going to be borrowing based on the value of the house? What is your behavior, your credit behavior, or your behavior with money on maybe insurance or something like that? They're looking at the whole picture, not just the the the, dig, the three digits. And unfortunately, as I said before, the way the system is designed is to get us into debt because they're saying you need to have a house, you need to have multiple sources of credit and all of that in order to build a credit score. But knowing the credit landscape, we can get around that if we can understand how to build credit without getting into a lot of debt. And so, yeah, so we, we've mentioned debt before. And so, I mean, is that, uh, I mean, I guess debt for me would be you've borrowed some money and now you have to pay it back again. Is that correct? Uh, that's part of it. Yes. Okay. So you, you, you borrowed some money and you have to pay it back. Typically you have terms when you borrow that money, uh, you need to pay it back within a certain number of years, or it could be that you purchased an item on credit. Uh, it could be a house, a car, it could be a computer, it could be some shoes. Uh, but you purchase it on credit and then you have terms of, I need to pay back this money to the creditor over a certain period of time. And I need to pay a minimum of so many dollars. So those are some of the things that will govern how you get the loan and how you manage the loan from, from the creditor. And so when I was growing up, my parents said, you only ever get a loan on a house or a car don't use credit cards, don't get a loan for anything else. Is that a good 
I guess, rule to live by um, or are they being too cautious? Well, I would say it's a good rule for somebody that it works for Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, again, because credit is so, or the whole personal finance is so different, but that's a good rule of thumb because it keeps you out of trouble. House is collateral. So if you were to borrow the money for a house, you can always turn around and sell it and get that money back or some portion of that money. If you, the same with a car, yes, it's devalued when you walk off the lot with it, but you can get something back. Now, I put something on a credit card and I'm paying for it over years and years and years. I don't even remember what I put on that credit card. I, I, I don't remember what meal I went to, the dress that I bought that I thought was so fly, was so great. It's probably shredded by now, holes in it, but I'm still paying for it years later. <laughs> so are there any things that you shouldn't put on credit? Um, you sort of, you mentioned, um, you know, dresses, shoes, meals. Are, are there, those the types of things that you shouldn't put on credit or you can under certain, certain circumstances? What's the, what, what, what do we do? I think you can put anything on credit. The main thing is, do you have the cash to pay it off? So it's not so much not putting the thing on the credit card as what is the plan to pay that off? Because I charge pretty much everything on my credit cards. I have a credit card that gives me cash back on gas and groceries at the grocery store. So I use that card for for gas and for groceries. Then I have another card that gives me cash back when I go to a restaurant. I use that card just for that. But I pay them off each month because I'm strategic with making sure that I have the money to pay off the cards at the end of the month. And then I get my cash back. I have one card that I use for points for a certain airline. So it's not about what you put on the card, is what plans do you have to pay that card off? Because if you don't have a plan, if you don't have money in savings to pay that off and something happens, then you're stuck with that money, that bail to pay over a long period of time. So you can put whatever you want on the card, mm-hmm. but just have a plan to pay it off. Okay. So I guess that's what you're saying about budgeting is um, instead of just putting everything on the credit card and then being like, oh, well, I'll just pay this off later. Um, it's about saying, well, this is how much money I'm making. This is my credit cards and I've spent $20 on this one and I'll spend $20 on that one. And that leaves me $30 at the end of the month. Is that what you're talking about? That's, that's part of it. So, Hmm. you know, if you, you're going to, when you create your budget, you're going to have categories. And in that category, you decide if you're going to use the cash from your checking account to purchase those things, or if you're going to use your card and then pay, take the cash from your, your checking account to pay the card at the end of the month. So you're, you're already having a budget that tells you you don't want to spend more than 300 on groceries. You don't want to spend more than 200 eating out. So when you're using the card, you have to pay attention to how you're using it. And if you have a problem with paying attention to and keeping track of what you're using and how you're using the card, then I say go to just use cash. You know, because again, it's really about management of the money, however that is, whether it's managing the cash 
or just managing the card. But if you have a plan and you you know in on your budget, I can spend 300 on this card for groceries and you're watching throughout the month how you're spending, then you should be okay. Because again, a card is a tool. A, like money is a tool. And how well do I use this tool? Do I know the rules of money? Do I know the rules of using this card? And the impact it will have if I don't pay it off or the impact it will have if I spend over what I should before the reporting date and that's reported to the credit bureau. So in managing all of that, if you're good at it, then I say use the card. I would never tell a client not to use a credit card. I would just say have a plan for how you're going to pay off what it is that you're using. So we did mention a little bit before about the plan, but so what's the next step? Um, you know, you've, I guess you've, you've totaled, you know, all your expenses and you've totaled your, um, your income. What's the next step, I guess? It's to do a comparison. So how much income are you bringing in and how much expense? Do you have a deficit? Do you have more expenses than income? Um, or do you have more income than expenses? Do you have expenses that maybe you can get rid of? Uh, you want to, first of all, you want to classify your expenses. Or second of all, you want to classify your expenses. What are fixed expenses? Your mortgage, your car note, you know, things like those. Then you have the discretionary expenses. The discretionary expenses, those are those expenses that you can play with. That's where you have room to play around in your budget. Because it's not like you can pay $1,000 for your mortgage when it's $1,500. You know, it's $1,500. That's what you have to pay. But for groceries, now you can put plans in place. Like you can say, okay, I have identified my fixed expenses. These are things I must pay. This is what's left over. So how can I make this work for me? Well, for groceries, I want to do 300 per month. How can I make that work? Maybe it's by making a budget around your, or a meal plan uh, around that 300. So for the first week of the month, I'm going to have spaghetti on Monday, Tuesday. On, on Wednesday, I'm going to have, I'm going to buy a whole chicken. I'm going to bake that. I'm going to have chicken with vegetables on Wednesday. And then I'm going to have leftovers for a salad. And then I'm going to have sandwiches on the next day. So, so you're planning ahead, not just for the money to go shopping, but you're thinking about how you're going to spend that money to be able to uh, make that 300 last for, for the month. So you're being strategic or you say, okay, I have 300 in my budget for, for meals, but now I have a newborn. So I have to change that uh, because now I have daycare and now I have to buy um, pampers or whatever it is. So now you have to start looking at what else can I cut? Do I need to increase my income? Maybe I need to, I'm going to decrease my, my income because I'm going to stay home but then I'm going to save on the other hand with daycare because now I don't have daycare expenses because from what I understand these days, it's a mortgage payment for daycare. So, you know, things like that, but you, the best thing to do is to know your numbers because you can't make those decisions. You can't make those changes and those shifts without knowing your numbers. 
So that's where you have to start with the tracking at the beginning, tracking those expenses. And if you don't want to track, download your your bank account, download your credit card statement, identify those categories and put them on a spreadsheet in an app or something, whatever you're comfortable with to identify how you're spending, how you've spent over the last maybe 30 days. And then now that you know your numbers, now you can make adjustments for the following month and the month after that. But you really have to know your numbers. Then once you get the income and expenses together, what do I need to change to get to the next step? And and then you have to look at savings too. Savings should be aligned in your budget. Should always be aligned in your budget. Even if it's a dollar, you want to start because it's developing that savings muscle. It's that muscle that says, I need to set aside money in in an account for the future because I can lose my job. I can get sick where I can't work and I may have to quit my job for a few months or something. It's not about if something will happen, it's when something will happen. So having that saving habit and developing that muscle, I tell my clients, start with a dollar because then you can build on that go to five, go to 10. And you don't miss that money because you don't see it. You can set up automatic deposits for your savings account. There are certain things that you can do to make that savings out of sight, but it should always be a line item in your budget. And how do you decide how much it should be? Um, I mean, I guess, you know, starting off, it should be a dollar and that's pretty easy, but um, you know, say you've been doing it for a little while, you do have a goal in mind. How do you decide what your savings should be? You just have to balance it with all your other expenses. Mm-hmm. You know, if I actually had a client today that I told her, I think you're saving too much because every month you are going back and pulling money out of your savings account to cover your expenses, but you're saving and then you're taking it back out to cover your expenses. So we need to look at what the expenses are that you are pulling out money out of your savings to cover and then look at how much you're saving because you may need to lower that for a bit so we can get your expenses under control. So there is no set amount that you will think about saving, but does that fit into your budget? So if your budget is only $1,000 and your expenses are $900, well, maybe you have 100 there to, to save, uh, but you always want to put money in savings. And if you don't have room to add savings as a line item, then maybe there's something else you can cut as in expenses and, or you could maybe do some kind of side hustle. And the, the whole process is so basic that sometimes we look for something sophisticated for, to make our budget work, but it's as simple as knowing what's coming in, <laughs> knowing what's going out and knowing how we can move those numbers around to make our goal, make it work for us and whatever goals we have. Okay. That, it does sound very easy when you say it like that. I, I hope so. I hope so. Because I want, I want people to understand that money is not something to be feared. We've created a, 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 a rhetoric around money, uh, this messaging of something to be feared, something not to be talked about. And I know some of it is based on, 
you know, where we where we come from based on our past experiences, based on the culture that we grew up in. Some of it comes from that. But for the most part, money is not something to be feared. We we know about money. We just don't want to think we know or we don't think we know about money, but we do it, use it every day. We're buying something on the on the web. We are buying something in the store. We're using money every day. It's just currency. It's adding and subtracting. That's all it is. It's as simple as that. But because we've built up this fear and this thing around money, we think it, it can't be that simple. It, mm-hmm. There's got to be something else going on with money. But it really is that simple. So I'd also like to know what you recommend um, we do if, you know, you've you've got all of your, you're tracking all of your, um, you know, expenses, you're tracking your income, you've got some money going into savings, but what happens if something unexpected happens? Um, you know, your car breaks down, um, your yeah. child grows really quickly and you have to buy them a whole new set of clothes really all of a sudden. Yeah. What happens? What What do you do? And that's the beauty of an emergency fund. Mm-hmm. That really is the beauty of an emergency fund because those things will happen. The roof will need to be repaired. The water heater will break. And having that emergency fund give you a peace of mind. Now, if there are people like me, I don't like to touch my emergency fund, even when I have an emergency, because I tend to be a hoarder when it comes to money. And all of us have money personalities. All of us have money stories. Um, and mine tend to be a hoarder, which is not good because I don't enjoy, I have to force myself to enjoy my money. Um, but I know that about me. So, but the thing is having that emergency fund really does give you peace of mind because now you can pull from there to cover that emergency. And even if it's not enough to cover the entire emergency, you still have that, you have something in the emergency fund to cover your emergency. And then you can maybe borrow money from a family friend before you use your credit card. Can you borrow money from your family Can you get a family member to donate to whatever it is that you, whatever expenses you have? There's things to think about before going for a loan, before using your credit card, before using those awful, awful, awful payday loans. There are things that we can think about. But I think sometimes with pride, um, we think, and with ego, we think, I'm doing a good job or I'm in a good job. I have a good job. I'm supposed to make good money. I'm supposed to do well with my money. And because of that, we don't ask for help. And basically all it does is spiral out of control. And then we're at a place where we have no option but to ask for help. And we make decisions sometimes that don't serve us because we're making them in panic. So, you know, make go ahead and look at creating an emergency fund because it's going to give you peace of mind as something you can pull from in the event that we have an emergency, because it will happen. Something will happen. The tires need to be replaced. Something will happen. But having that, that fund, you know, will definitely help. And it seems like part of having the emergency fund is not just having the emergency fund, but also thinking about it and planning what you'll do if something, if it is out of your, out of your control. Um, and so I guess coming to terms with the fact that you do have to ask family members for help, 
before the emergency happens and maybe even discussing it with them beforehand um, so that rather than, as you said, you know, going to payday loans um, in a panic, um, you have a plan that's worked out beforehand. Perfect. Yes, that is exactly what needs to happen because even if you don't talk to that family member about what it is that you would like to do in the event something were to happen, but if you have some kind of strategy in place, some kind of plan already. So what if my roof were to blow off? (laughs) I know that's kind of extreme. Um, What if my tires were, what if I needed to replace all four of my tires? What would I do? When you have those things in mind or those plans already that you're thinking about implementing those plans, it makes it easier to make a decision from a place of, you know, a place of um, safety, I guess, is, you know, or without panicking. It's, you're yeah. not making it from a place of fear or any of that. You you know ahead of time that there's a possibility that you could have an emergency and you're making contingency plans. So, okay, if my tires were to blow out, I have $400 in savings. It's not going to cover my tires Maybe I can have them put the the best two on the back if if it's a back wheel drive and put two new ones in the front. And then next month I can take, you know, a paycheck or part of my paycheck and buy the next two tires. Okay, so that's my plan if anything were to happen. Okay, if it doesn't happen that month, then okay, that's giving me an extra month to save for that tire. Or if I know that the possibility of my you know, my, my um, air, air conditioner system or my dryer is old and I know that there's a possibility that it's going to break down in a few years or in a few months, then I can put that into my emergency fund to save towards that. We can do evaluations before any of this happens and go around your house, look at all the things that you're using how much more usage do you think you'll get out of those things? And if you think I have maybe a year, two years, okay, how can I build that into my emergency fund? How can I build that into my savings plan so that in the event it happens, I'm ready for the replacement. I'm ready to, to I'll have the money to pay for the replacement product, whatever it is. Hmm. And, how so after you figured out you know what in your house or what you, what things you own might need to be replaced or repaired um in the near future how how do you decide how much money should go into the emergency fund you know you've said this is how much i can save but is that another is that another i guess portion that comes out of the savings account well there are two types of emergency funds there's one for things that we know about that we're going to we're going to save for. I'm saving for a house. I'm saving to buy a new car, and then there's one there where you're just saving for the anything could happen fund. Mm-hmm. And the one, of course, that you're saving for the, the down payment on the house, you know how much that is. The one to buy the car, you know how much that is. But the anything could happen fund, that's the one that really you don't know how much to put in there, but you know you need to have something in there. So I would always tell people what you want to look at is if I were to be out of of a job, let's say I got laid off, 
based on my field, how long possibly would it take me to get a new job? If you're in a field that's saturated, it may take you a little bit longer. If you're in a field that is not as as saturated, it may, your turnaround time to getting a new job could be shorter. So based on that, how many months should I save? So I would possibly need to save three months because my skills are in high demand and within three months, I'll possibly get a job. Well, maybe I need to save six months because my skills are possibly in demand, but they're not in that high demand. There's a lot of people with my skill set. Or if maybe I need to do a year. So it really depends on all the things that you want to think about. How soon would I get a job? Whatever it is that's impacting you or could impact you to need that emergency fund. How do I think about those things? And that's going to drive how much you want to save. But on average, we say three to six months is what you want to save. But it could be a year, depending on what could possibly happen. Okay, interesting. Um, Was there anything that um, we haven't touched on that you would like to talk about? Well, I think uh, one of the things um, we could possibly share is ways that we can save money. So we, I think I shared about maybe automating your savings. And that's one way that you can build your savings account. But another thing to think about is maybe having a bank that is not a popular bank, doesn't have a lot of branches in another town and putting money in that bank. Because now you have to go through some hurdles to get to that next town that next city to get to that money. And that's going to give you second thought before touching that money. Uh, Another thing is online savings account. I have two um, savings account that are, don't have any brick and mortar. And I have money going to those two accounts. And in order for me to get that money, I don't have a debit card attached to it. I have to, To get that money, I have to download that money or transfer it to a different bank. Takes a few days. Then I go into that bank, my my normal bank, use a debit card or go to the ATM to pull that money out. So do I want to go through all of that? By the time the few days pass, that thing that I needed the money for, I may not need it anymore. So putting barriers around the emergency fund. Now you want to make sure you have some money on hand for, for, for things that could happen that you don't have that hurdle to jump through. So maybe you want to have maybe a thousand dollars or something in case electricity goes out and you know, you need to get to the bank. You want to maybe have a thousand dollars somewhere in a safe at home, if you can, uh, that's easily, easily accessible. But for those long-term savings goals, you possibly want to have the the money far away from you so that you only touch it if you really, really need it. I think that's a good that's a good tip. And I was also gonna ask about what happens if you do if you need the money immediately, because uh when I was in Thailand, I had to go to hospital and I had to pay them the money and I had uh forgotten pin pin number to my card. Um 
So I couldn't access the money. So I didn't know how to pay them. Luckily, my parents were able to transfer the money um, to my partner who paid. Yeah. Um, so oh, I was very lucky in that case. But it's it's great that you included keeping a little bit of cash um, if yeah. $1,000 is a little bit of money um, yeah. just for those types of situations. Yes, because things happen. I mean, banks close. Uh, banks, people make run on banks, which which we saw recently, uh, which caused the banks to close and you don't have access. I was in Florida um, about two months ago and there were signs on different uh, gas stations because of the flooding that they could not serve. They could not provide gas. So in order for you, they, the cards wouldn't work to get gas. So you could go in and pay cash, but you couldn't use your cards in some of them. Some of them you couldn't use anything, but, you know, you want to, you definitely want to have some money set aside for, for little emergencies like that. So what's a practice that you do in your own home to manage your household's budget? Yes. One of the practice I, one of the practices that I still do is tracking my money. And I could tell you what I paid for gas five years ago what I paid for groceries uh, five years ago. I could tell you all of that. And it wasn't my intention to keep all of this record, but I love spreadsheets. And so I just add a tab for the new year and start tracking and then tab for the new year. And that's what I kept doing. And that's why I know all of those old expenses. And I was reading in the Psychology of Money, a story about Rihanna, how she was trying to sue her manager because she was running out of money. And he made a comment about, I don't know what to tell you. If you spend more than what you have, then you're going to run out of money. And no matter how much money you have, millionaire, billionaire, you still need to know how much is coming in and how much is going out. You don't have to track to the level of detail that I still do because I'm a nerd and I love to go into details but you still need to have a handle on how much is coming in and how much is going out, which is why I still track my money so I can understand what's coming in and what's going out. Because the way I started this journey, I came to this country from Jamaica, went to college, and then I was hired and went to a state where I did not know anyone and I love to read. So I was buying books, $3, $2, $5 every weekend, several books. And someone came to the, the job and gave me a book that would allow me to track my expenses. And at the end of tracking for one month, I realized I was spending over $300 a month on books and it wasn't even educational books. So that's the importance of tracking because I'm seeing $2, $3, but it ends up that I'm spending $300 on books. So it is very important to track and whatever methodology you want to use, but you need to know what's coming in and what's going out. That's a lot of books. A lot of books. And I gave away all of them because they weren't even books I wanted to read again. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then I discovered the library. So now I do everything at the library. I get, I have my Libby app on my phone. I, I can, if I want to go to the local park, I can go to my library you know, there are so many sources that we can use to that we don't have to spend money. The library is a great resource. Go there. You can get movie tickets. 
You can get passes to different uh, events that are going on around your city, get passes to different um, parks and, and things like that. So, you know, use your use your library. We're paying for it in our taxes. So you may as well take advantage of it. Mm hmm. Yeah, I um I also love reading, so I I use my uh, library a lot. It saves me a lot of money in books, um, and then I can also read what I want rather than what's in my local op shop um, or secondhand bookstore. Um, thank you for sharing your practice with us today. You are welcome. Um, thank you. Um, uh, so we're going to move on to our open mic section next. That's where you, the guest, get to talk about something that you're passionate about. It doesn't have to be related to our topic today, but it can be. Did you have something in mind? Well, as I've mentioned several times, is that I'm a nerd and I love seeing the light bulb go off in people's eyes when they realize that they have a path forward with their money. It's something that excites me to know that I help somebody see the light when it comes to their money. And this passion is something I have pursued for many, many, many years. I taught for in my church. I taught in different places because knowledge is power, but even more powerful is application of knowledge. And, you know, the book we talk about, Psychology of Money, it's not about what you know, it's how you use what you know. And so for me to be able to help people to see how they can save money, even when they think they can't, to find that few dollars in their budget, it does something, it's just a priceless thing. You know, the ad with where they talk about different things and they say to have that card, I won't say the, the name, uh, but to have that card is priceless. The experience is priceless. And for me, that's what this is. It's so much joy, so much, uh, you know, it just I just have a certain um, excitement when it comes to being able to share with people, to let them understand how credit works, to let them understand if you understand the game, you will know how to play it. Uh, because the rule of money is just a game. It's a game. Understand how people who are millionaires get away what you think, get away with not paying taxes, but they're not getting away with it. They've learned the rules. They've learned the rule book and they're applying that. So for you and I, the little man, if we can understand those rules, if we can know how to apply those rules, then it's a game changer. And so when I can do that for somebody, it is just a, it's just pure joy to be able to eliminate um, somebody's life with the truth or the fact around money and for them to not be afraid of it and to get excited. I saved money. Oh, can you believe I saved $500 at the end of the month? I've had testimonies like those. And those are so gratifying. I think that, um, yeah, what you're saying is that money is so important to us, um, you know, for better or for worse. It, it is something that we have to have to live. Um, and so being able to help people to save money, it it allows them, I guess, to be, yeah, worry-free it allows them to have the life that they want. You know, if they want to buy a house, then they can have the security of buying a house. And you can't do that without having money and saving money. So 
yeah, it's amazing what you do that um, you are able to help um, and educate all these people so that they can, you know, have the better life that they want. Yeah. And you don't have to be millionaires. I mean, for you, for some people, all they need to do is save $500, depending on their mm. circumstances, because they may live in a family home where they're not trying to, you know, pay, save money for mortgage or for re- repair or anything like that. That could be their victory. Uh, somebody else is $1,000. So, you know, we don't have to all strive to have hundreds of thousands of dollars in our savings account. It really just depends on our goals and what it is that we're trying to to achieve and to just have someone be able to achieve their goal and to celebrate reaching that goal. It's just, it's, it's a job that really is beyond words in explaining the joy that I get from, from helping them do that. Yeah. And it's great to hear as well. Yeah. That you have so much joy because I think that, you know, sometimes people with money, they can be like, oh, the, you know, people who are helping us, they only care about the money. They only care about the banks, but it's, it's so great to hear that you really do care about your clients. So thank you. I didn't share my story earlier, but at 54, I filed for divorce and because he did not want to sign the documents, I walked away from my house on advice of my lawyer. And I was very worried about my credit, very worried about what it would look like on my report because I worked very hard to have excellent credit. And my lawyer told me, don't worry about it. You have a good job. You are very, you know, you are very creative. You know how to make things work. So you'll be okay. And it took me five years, but my credit is near perfect now. And walking away from the house, my credit dropped in the 500s. I had no savings. I had no anything. But today I own a house. I have my savings account is multiple five figures. Just all the things that I was able to do is because of the things I talked about. And it's just balancing, working on the basic things, building the foundation of managing my money, paying attention to where my money goes, making some sacrifices sometime and saying, you know what, I'm not going to travel. I'm going to save that money because I want to buy a house. Knowing that I need to repair my car, knowing that I need to buy four tires. So my story is not unusual. Um, And I'm sharing that because I want somebody else out there to know that I started over, so to speak, in my 50s. And it's not too late for you to start over if you are in a similar situation. I went from all of those assets to practically nothing And then I rebuilt just using basic personal finance foundation. And you can do the same. Thank you for sharing your story. Um, I've heard that, um, um, you know, middle-aged to older women have very high rates of homelessness because of the lack of, you know, financial stability. And, you know, if they divorce their husband or if they leave their husband, um, often they're left in very precarious states. So I think that you sharing your story and sharing your knowledge, it's very important because you're helping those people in those situations, not just people like you, but also people in in all situations. So thank you so much. You you are welcome. Yes, you're, you're right about that because a lot of women, the men were the CEOs in the house and they don't know where the monies are. They don't know where the papers are. They don't know how much their husband make. 
and women tend to live longer than men for the most part. And whether it's through divorce or death, women are left floundering because now they have to learn those things that they never took interest in. So I want women out there to pay attention to what's going on with the money in their household. Learn, the, you don't have to get into the nitty gritty, but you need to learn enough to know if you were to lose your husband through divorce or death, that you have the knowledge to be able to rebuild your finances. Mm, yes, thank you. I'm sure that, um, well, I'm, I hope that you know, every woman who's listening to this takes that to heart and, you know, takes a look at, look at their finances or their, um, you know, their partner and their finances together. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. And um, if people do want to find out more about you and uh, your work, where can they find you? The best place to go is to my website, which is sevtalksmoney.com. That's S-E-V talksmoney.com. And you can find all of my social media links there. Um, all of my podcasts, all my products, all of that is linked on my website. Great. Thank you. Well, make sure those, show, uh, those are in the show notes so everyone can find you very easily. Thank you so much for joining me today. It was really great to chat with you. Such an important conversation. Thank you for having me. Thank you. You've been listening to On The House, produced by the Household Management Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes like this from across 10 life management perspectives can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, and other podcasting apps available on your smart devices. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it, and subscribing to our channel as it helps other people find it so we can grow and bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website at hm.lmsl.net where you can join our movement. I'm Gabriella Yastra. Thanks for tuning in.